Hello and welcome to another episode of Their Giants Podcast. I am your host as always, Roger Munter. Uh, this is, I believe, the 155th episode of the show I've done, but it is also a first. I have never had a player agent on the program with me, and I am extremely happy to break that streak today. Um, Alex Hens uh, has joined me. Uh, he works for BPA, Ball Players Agency, and Alex represents a good number of uh, of players in the Giants organization, uh, most prominently, I suppose, Ryan Walker, but also guys like RJ Dabovich, uh, Ben Madison, Spencer Bivens, Matt Olson. Uh, so uh, <laughs> a good connection to the Giants organization. We're going to talk a little bit about player development from the player side today. Um, a lot of times we focus on organizations, what organizations are doing and forget that the individuals are really in, in control of their careers. So Alex, thanks so much for taking some time to join me. I know you have a busy week coming up. Uh, how are you? How is the offseason treating you? I'm good. I'm good. We're uh, Thanks for having me. Um, we're kind of churning right along. We've got a couple free agents that we're working on. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a fun time. This is, I feel like the more fun time of year for us than the actual uh, season. This is the on season for you, not the off season. That's how my wife would describe it. Where are you actually uh, joining me from? If if your Twitter bio and my Google skills are in sync, uh, I think maybe you played ball at Dakota Westlion, Westlion University. Are you in the great upper plains? Uh, I did play baseball at Dakota Wesleyan University. Um, however, I live in the Denver area, so <laughs> I'm just I'm just south of Denver. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a beautiful area and, and a great place to be joining from. Um, I well, let's start with kind of uh, learning about your story. Um, I'm almost interested in how people kind of choose their path in lives. Uh, uh, you you played ball, you became a lawyer. I'm sure that's part of it. But how did you find yourself into being a player yeah. agent? So, you know, I recognized probably my sophomore or junior year of college that as much as I wanted to be a big leaguer, the uh, the market for five foot eight outfielders that swing at every curveball <laughs> is is limited. And uh, so I went ahead and knew that law school was the path I wanted to take. Uh, went to law school at the University of Denver. My first year I was there, I interned with an NFL agent, knew I wanted to stay in sports, wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Um, then I worked for the NCAA compliance department at DU for a little while. And uh, then I competed in the national baseball arbitration competition, which is a competition that law students have at Tulane University every year. Um, was able to impress Matt Klein, the now AGM for the Brewers. Um, they brought me in as a track man and I did a little bit of scouting intern out of AAA that year. Um, and then Went back to the National Baseball Arbitration Competition the next year and uh, met Scott Pearson, who was the head of arbitration and free agency for ISE Baseball at the time. They brought me in as an intern in October of 2016. Um, I spent that offseason with them and then started looking for a job in, in baseball. Um, I had met Storm, our CEO, at the winter meetings. He wasn't hiring at the time. Um, I had met with some other companies along the way, just didn't land anything. So I started my own agency at 20, what was I 26 at that time? And uh, the first client I signed was uh, RJ Dabovich. Nice. Um, and then I signed a guy named Joe Rosenstein who played for the twins for a little bit. Um, we were coming up on the June draft that year. I kind of stayed in contact with storm and we just happened to talk the day before the draft. And he's like, well, how are things going? I'm like, well, I should have three guys drafted this week. And he's like, 
what? And I said, yeah. And he offered me a contract on the spot. I joined him right there, right before the 2017 draft and uh, have now been with Storm since then. Um, and now I'm his vice president of baseball operations. So I oversee Beautiful. salary arbitration, free agency. Uh, I, I coordinate the draft in conjunction with a couple other guys. Um, yeah, I kind of have my hands in everything now. I have you beat. I was a 5'11 outfielder who couldn't hit a curveball. So, so you wait. had me by three inches. So you had better prospects <laughs> than I did. Hopefully, I don't know if the massive ruckus that's going on in my house uh, is, is being caught up, but apparently two of my cats have decided this is a good time for a war. Uh, well, I can't hear it. So you're good. <laughs> excellent. So I, I you you kind of uh, piqued my interest with the, with the arbitration contest. Um, yeah. What... Uh, Tell me a couple things that nobody from the outside understands about the arbitration process, uh, because it just seems so obtuse and, and arcane. I, I think that uh, what people don't understand is, and you see it on Twitter every year when these deals start to come out, it's just like, oh my gosh, how did that guy get $2.5 million? He stinks. And the reason that he got $2.5 million is because somebody else who equally stunk got 2.5 million previously. <laughs> and so arbitration is just based on the comparison of your player to past players. And, and that's, you know, there's a massive market and you just see where your player lands in the middle. And then, you know, that that's usually where the disagreement begins with the teams is we see them up here, team sees them <laughs> down here and answer is usually somewhere in between there. Um, but yeah, it's it also a things like age aren't considered an arbitration. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't, uh, it, it is strictly stat-based and injury transaction-based. There's no, there's no outliers in there. It's, it's, it's almost entirely a sort of model. You have your model and they have their model sure. and it spits out a number and then you meet at the 50% mark most of the time, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, when Buster Posey retired. When he announced his retirement, one thing that really caught my eye was how much he talked in his remarks about his relationship with his agent and his agent's team, um, not just the financial side, but how much they were life partners for him and his wife and his family. Uh, it really stood out in his comments. Yeah, Most people, myself included, have no more insight into your job than having watched you know, Jerry Maguire 25 years ago. What exactly, which, as I recall, said, you know, personal relationships are the most important part about being an agent. For sure. How do you establish relationships? How do you know kind of who you want to help? What goes on behind the scenes in your relationship with your players other than finding numbers for them to sign a contract on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what everyone sees is the contract negotiation part of agents. But I am psychologist, uh, girlfriend advice giver, wife advice giver, parents, you know, my guys are starting to have kids. Um, I have kids myself, you know, it's anything in their life that you think they might need help with, you get tied into, um, you know, you, a lot of times on my high school draft picks, I've had guys call me at 11 o'clock at night. Hey, how do I make this washing machine work in the hotel? Um, and it's easy to laugh and I do too, but then you also remember like these are 18 year old kids a lot of times like they've not been away from home that much or they've never had to do their own laundry. And um, particularly when they're in college and you're helping them through the draft process, you're dealing with them frequently. It, you know, we do a little bit of everything. We help them buy houses. We help them find financial advisors. We help them go on vacations. We help them understand rules. We, 
you know, coordinate drug testing stuff. I mean, it, the the number of things I can be doing in a given day for each individual player is endless. Um, on the first part of your question, how do you decide which relationships you want? That's the hard part. Um, we meet with a ton of kids every year. Uh, a handful of them decide to work with us. Um, I would say more often than not, there's some sort of, at this point, relationship to a previous client. This is how they end up with us. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we hunt at BPA, like really good kids. We, we look for guys that, uh, you know, scouts like that people like, um, their teammates like them. Uh, we tend to shy away from guys that are a little bit tougher, um, regardless of how good they might be. And maybe sometimes that's a fault, but, um, the flip side of that is we've taken on some guys that had some challenges in their college or high school careers that we felt like were good people that made bad decisions, um, under the approach that even guys who make mistakes deserve good representation. So, you know, we, we've, we've kind of run the gamut. I think we're really lucky to have the guys that we have. I mean, if you look at my list of giants guys, um, current and former, right. They, uh, they're all really good guys. Um, and that all started with honestly, RJ, RJ got drafted by the giants. RJ says, Hey, you should sign my friend, Ryan Walker. I signed Ryan Walker. <laughs> um, right about then Matt Olson gets drafted around the same time. Spencer Bivens gets signed. Olson and Bivens are friends. I signed Bivens. Bivens calls, hey, you need to sign my buddy Ben Madison. Yeah. RJ calls around the same time. You need to call Simon. And next thing you know, you have 10 guys within the clubhouse. Right. You have Ryan Walker says, hey, my old roommate Shane Matheny needs some help. Right. Yeah. Well, Shane Matheny's <laughs> a BBA guy as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't actually put this in the rundown, but it came up in, in your comments. And I, I, yeah. When, when the, um, when we finally got uh, at long last, teams being responsible for more player housing. One of the big questions that came up was in fact, married players uh, who wanted to have their wives with them on the season. And I've never seen a resolution to that. What is that situation at this point? Is it kind of they, if they want to go outside the team offered housing with a wife, they do that on their own or how's that work now? Yeah. So they can find their own housing and then they can take like a daily um, stipend essentially. What we see typically, for the most part, is that most guys don't have their wives travel. Um, most wives stay at the at the minor league level. Most wives stay home, wherever home might be, um, and they might come out a few times throughout the year, and the player will then just pay for a hotel for a week or whatever. The more challenging one we're seeing is players that have kids in the minor leagues, uh-huh. um, especially young kids that are with the wife. Um, but for the most part, teams have been really good about that stuff. Um, most of them will give the player, if the player wants to stay on the team facility, they often will give them their own room. Um, but I would say of the challenges we've had with the housing stuff that has been for the most part, one of the easier things to navigate. It it always interests me uh, how many, how many of the players do have wives or girlfriend, whether it's all season or significant part of the season, I go to you know all the Richmond games and I, I yep. see the, I see the group sitting there. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good. Good for them. Uh, you know, it, it helps make your life more comfortable, I think, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, baseball players are notoriously good at baseball and notoriously <laughs> good at ignoring anything else that's going on. Yeah. And I, would I mean, say that's, that, that's how you get to be great, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say eight times out of 10, once, especially once they've reached the big leagues, I deal with the wife more frequently than I will deal with the player. Well, I want to talk, I brought you on here because I do want to talk about how players sort of 
take control of their development in coordination with the organizations, but also knowing that you, to be successful, you really have to drive your own and train yeah. a little bit. We're into the off season now. Can you talk a little bit about from your side, how players go into an off season with a goal of improving some aspect of their game or their body? Yeah. How do you or coordinate with what the organization wants or in free agents case, What's what's the sort of sit down and figure out, here's what we need to do, here's what we're going to train, you know, all of those things that go on about this time of year? Yeah, so it it really runs the gamut. Um, for younger players and guys that are more recently drafted, they almost always start out their offseason either in structs or they come down for a camp. Um, that That's generally how they get off the ground. And then whenever they get out of those camps, they tend to progress to one of the facilities somewhere around the country. So we're seeing more and more players migrate to these facilities that are specific in training ball players, whether that's tread or Cressy or push, push. Um, you know, they're, they're all over the, the country and most guys will migrate to one of those facilities. Um, some hand, small subset of guys will train at the team facility. Um, but there's just not as much hands-on instruction at that point. There's not as many people around the facility to help. Um, so it's just, it's uh it, it, it just depends. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing that we we see is that teams want to have a hand in player development in the offseason, but they're not very good at actually doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to be critical. Um, I think it's a large number of players that have scattered all over the country, and it's just impossible to wrangle them all in. Um, and now that we have the dead period that runs from – the week of Thanksgiving until the new year, they can't even communicate with the players. So um, we're seeing more of an emphasis being placed on these outside facilities and getting the players into those facilities or at least remotely into those facilities to train. I I think that's a new bit of information. What is the, the dead period and where did that come from? Is that part yeah, of the so minor league CBA? That is, it's part of the minor league CBA. Um, teams cannot require players to be at the facilities. Teams can't bring players down for the camp. Um, Players can still access the facilities um, for most organizations uh, and rehab guys. There's an exception for rehab guys who are in injury rehab at the moment. Um, but yeah, it really, basically they can't have any contact with the team for the six week period around the holidays. And that's part well, of the minor league CBA. They also don't get paid. Okay. <laughs> you give and you get. Um, I had RJ on here, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago, uh, sometime uh, not long into the organization. And he talked about once he got drafted, uh, the Giants sort of gave him an idea of what they would like to see happen to his breaking ball. But he, you know, he had a relationship with push and that's really where he got mm -hmm. into trying to accomplish it. So it was almost like uh, the 60,000 foot blueprint came from the Giants, but then he and, and the people he was working with at push did the actual work to figure it out. Is that kind of what you see a lot? Yeah, and, and part of it is because the teams, if you think about the, the grand scheme of the baseball calendar, right, you bring a minor leaguer in in early March, you've got until the end of April to get things ready for the season. Then the season starts, and they really don't tinker with that much throughout the next, you know, three, four months. They just are looking to be successful. Uh -huh. um, then the season ends, the player can't throw more because so I'm talking pitcher specific. You know, they can't throw more, hitters are run down too. Um, guys just want to go home. They want to take a break. So there's not a lot of time for development there. The The peak time for development is really mid-October until the end of February um, when the teams are having a more hands-off approach. So 
yeah, the teams do, and they have, you know, so many great employees that are good at identifying what they want these guys to do. I think the onus is often on the player to, to develop that skill. So another conversation that always jumps into my mind is when I had a couple years ago with Ryan Murphy and um, I was kind of you know, talking to him how he developed uh, his repertoire. And one thing I remember him saying was when he first got into camp, the Giants suggested that maybe his slider and his curve weren't different enough and they'd like to see him focus on one or the other. And he yep. went off in the off season and said, you know what, that's not the pitcher I want to be. I want to be a pitcher who throws both these things. And he worked on that when a, First off, how often do you have guys say, no, that's not what I want to do because I want to be this kind of player, not that kind of player. And then how does that relationship, how do you communicate that back to the team, essentially? Yeah, I would say on on 17th rounders, uh, they never do that. Um, <laughs> do whatever the team tells them to do and they hope for the best. On top five rounders, they puff their chest out frequently on what they want to do. So it depends on the type of prospect you are. It depends on the amount of money that's tied to you um, to have that ability to say, no, I'm not doing that. Or yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, it, it runs. It, it, there's a lot of different factors there in terms of how we go about that with the team. We try to encourage players to have those conversations themselves. Um, they tend to go better if the player has the conversation rather than us. Now, if we feel like they're not getting anywhere or the team is doing something that is fundamentally going to hurt the player's development, then we may step in. Um, I can tell you those conversations are often uncomfortable. Uh, teams don't like being told how to do things. Um, but I think usually teams that are good teams will have a real conversation with you or at least give you the ability to communicate back to your player maybe better than they are doing why the team is trying to do this. Um, because I think that's what often happens is that players are inherently intimidated by front office personnel. Mm. And so they get into meetings, they get told news they don't like, and they only absorb 50% of the conversation. And then they're mad and then they call us. Then we call over, have that conversation again with emotion taken out of it and say, no, 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 they didn't tell you that you can't throw your curve on anymore. What they said is, you know, they want this, this, and this, which we can do a better job of communicating based on our relationship and background and years of trust with, with the player. I mean, the end of the day, results always help the conversation, right? If you come back from an yeah. offseason and say, look what I've look what I've done here, it 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 smooths the the going a little bit. I, I guess one one thing you hear every now and then uh, from player is, I mean, there are a lot of voices these days. They, just on the team side, there are a lot of voices. There's the coaches, there's the data, there's the R&D. Then you got the the people at the labs in the offseason, agents. How does a player filter all that noise and make it helpful and work for him rather than become confusing? Yeah, I think most players are pretty good about building a circle of people around them that they trust. Um, and what tends to, we try not to put our hand into their development too often. Like I'm not a coach. I know a lot. I coached a long time ago. Um, but in my current role, I'm not a coach and I'm certainly not a big league coach. And I certainly haven't played in the big leagues and I certainly haven't pitched against a big league batter. And, you know, I try to leave those decisions to people that, that do it. Um, you know, I might bounce an idea off a player, have a conversation about it, but 
most players are pretty good about filtering in the couple of voices from the organization that they want to hear from and trusting them. I will say in the last, especially five to 10 years, organizations have gotten significantly better at, for the most part, about communicating to players, you know, what they want them to do. You know, here's the guy we want you focusing, you know, listening to Um, that that's improved, especially in good organizations, a ton over the, especially the last five years. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where teams were unhappy with guys going to driveline or having their own swing coach or whatever in the offseason, right? That that's that has turned around quite a bit. Do right. you keep up with or is it important for you, for what you do, to keep up with either technology or information technology advances like, you know, weighted bats or pile of balls? Do you need to know about that so you can kind of help advise guys or is that like, yeah. I'm gonna let the experts do that? We, I mean, we let experts do it, but at the end of the day, we're often the one paying for the equipment to do those things. So yeah, weighted bats, water bags. Um, you know, it seems like once in off season, somebody sends me something to purchase that I've never seen before. Um, so yeah, we, we play a, a role in that. I order probably, gosh, I don't know, 20 boxes of driveline baseballs a year for pitchers. Um, because while the team has them, the players don't like sharing. Guys want to have their own balls, um, J bands, you know, those kind of things. We're, we're always purchasing that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, for sure, I think even more so is understanding pitch data, right? We, we are a six person company, so we don't have an analyst in house. Uh-huh. Um, and so I especially take a bunch of time understanding Rapsodo and TrackMan data and how, how it works. And, you know, I may not be as good as, Andrew Bailey or some of these people in front offices, but I have a good idea of what I'm reading and and analyzing that data um, so that I can have conversations with players. Uh, We've mentioned RJ a few times, like RJ understands his data, but maybe better than any player I've ever had. Um, And so that's actually been great on RJ's part because he's challenged me throughout his career to keep up, um, which has been a net benefit to to all of our players that they were, were able to discuss their data with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's something, as I understand it, uh, talking from people, that's something where scale really helps. You know, Driveline has a database of thousands and thousands and thousands of pitcher grips so that when you see a new pitch, you have all of this background knowledge to say that tried with this guy. It might work with you guy. So six people, uh, you, you don't obviously have that scale. Um no. I want to so I I want to just do a little case study work here, and I do want to talk yeah. about Ryan Walker because I think uh, he's long been a favorite of mine, and his evolution has been particularly fascinating. Um, what I really found interesting about Ryan, you see guys who go off in the off season and come back with a couple of ticks of velo on their fastball. That didn't happen with Ryan. You watched it in season, really growing across the year. I remember seeing him in in spring training of what was that, twenty twenty two, and and then like June, he suddenly pushed up four or five or six miles an hour on occasion. How did that process happen? Was it with intent? Uh, was he chasing that velocity? What kind of went behind the the evolution of Ryan yeah. uh, in that year? I think Ryan would, you know, be better at, at explaining, but I'll do my best <laughs> to talk kind of through it. But I think that the the process of that really began at the beginning of the off season and at the end of 2021, heading into 2022. Um, Ryan, around that time, started working with a new physical therapist and really focusing on his body. Um, 
both on a strength standpoint, but also on a recovery standpoint. Um, and in doing that, and Ryan's got this, you know, it's a different delivery, right? And it does take yeah. a toll on the body, yeah. um, which I think effectively limited his ability to gain velo, particularly in seasons. We see a lot of guys gain velo as they head towards the all-star break. I mean, we almost always see this kind of like, and then they fade off towards the end of the year. Um, but I think Ryan had always struggled to do that just based on, on strength and recovery and those kind of things. And then when he got better at that, um, he got stronger and then he was able to recover faster and the body was able to start doing the things that it does as you develop in season and the velo jumped. Yeah. Um, and with anything, then velo jumps and confidence comes. And, you know, I think there's always a mental side to this too, that, uh, often gets ignored, but when you're feeling good, you play pretty good. And that certainly was the case for Ryan as he went through the 2022 season. Then he goes back into the off season, does it again, goes back to the same guys, continues working on building the body, um, you know, comes out, has a pretty electric first 30 days of the uh, season and, you know, finds himself in, in the big leagues. It, it, it matters too. small differences matter so much. I remember actually watching Ryan pitch maybe earlier that year, or maybe the year before. And I was sitting next to a, a scout I know, and we were talking about him and I said, I, you know, I think, I think this guy's a big leaguer. And he was like, yeah, I do too. I'd like to see him have more of a weapon for left-handers because lefties seem a little more comfortable with them, which makes sense with his particular delivery. It didn't take much of pushing the fastball velo up before that gap starts shrinking. And then you're talking about a different guy and it's really that kind of a grip or a, you know, it doesn't take a lot to go from being another one, another guy who's trying to somebody who is succeeding. I, I think that's kind of what's exciting about particularly the pitcher development side uh, these days that everybody is right really relief pitchers. I mean, any relief pitcher can be a big leaguer any day. Um, it, it happens very quickly. And then guys you think are going to get there suddenly don't for any number of reasons as well. Um, it's a uh, tale as old as time. Yeah. And you have a, uh, uh, it almost feels like you're the, you, you, you've got the market on relievers covered because most of the guys we're talking about that you represent are relievers. Uh, is that just the way things work? Or? It's just dumb luck sometimes. <laughs> you tend to get this in organizations, right? And and I touched on it earlier. Like you sign one player, you do a good job for that guy. You sign his buddy. Well, his buddy is probably a relief pitcher. So, you know, in this case, it started with RJ. Well, RJ feeds me to, to Ryan. He's a relief pitcher. Matt Olson's a relief pitcher, gets drafted as a reliever. He's hanging out with Bivens in the, in the dugout. You know, that's how it happens. Um, for a while, I had the market cornered on Rockies minor league middle infielders. I had like four of them. Um, <laughs> When I first started with BPA back in 2017, we represented 19 Blue Jays that um, Now, currently, we have one Blue Jay. So it it ebbs and flows and changes um, just based on on year to year and, and draft to draft. This year's draft, I had seven kids drafted. They were all right-handed pitchers, except one. I mean, I guess the flip side to it doesn't take much to turn you into a success story is – you have to be really resilient and really strong-minded uh, to keep chasing that. And I think of some of the guys we're talking about here, Ben Madison has obviously had a very long uh, path to get to where he is. Spencer Bivens has had a very a long path. and strange path. I don't think people understand generally how sort of 
mentally strong these players are um, to keep pushing um, with setbacks coming at them, often health uh, related. Um, so maybe you could just sort of talk about some of these journeys and, and what yeah. these guys have to go through. Yeah. I mean, Ben and Spencer are great examples. I came in on those guys' careers later, right? They were already established players when I showed up on the scene. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't part of the early part of their journeys, but, you know, getting to know the guys and hearing the stories, you, you get to know more and more. And more. Um, you know, Spencer is the most self-motivated, never give up guy going all the way back into even his college career. Um, you know, he goes from college to France, you know, multiple colleges, then he goes to France, then he comes back and he goes to Indy Ball. And it all winds up with him finally getting a contract with the Giants and uh, going to the Arizona Fall League, which is where he got my attention initially. Um, and has really pitched himself into a prospect. And now he's down in Mexico doing some really incredible stuff this offseason. <laughs> um, if, if people haven't looked, go look at what Spencer Bivens' numbers look like in, in Mexico this, this winter. Oh, wow. Uh, I think last I checked, it was a 1.6 ERA, 1.7 ERA. Um, he's been electric. Um, you know, Ben was always talented, always talented, um, but struggled with injuries on the early part of his career. Mm -hmm. And as it started to come together, he he's really starting to gain some steam. You know, he just got his first full healthy season under his belt. And, uh, you know, I think the sky's the limit for him. Now, for him, it's going to have to happen in a hurry because he uh, – He's, he'll be a free agent at the end of next year. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of that going on as well as, you know, the Giants have some tough decisions to make with lots of guys, not not just my guys, about, you know, how we accelerate guys through the minors, especially with the reserve limits and, and those kind of things. Yeah, and yeah, all the people who read my stuff, <laughs> I I feel like I go overboard talking about this, uh, the effects of the move from the reserve limit from 180 to 165 and how fast that is going to force organizations to kind of go no-go on players. Uh, another thing I've been writing about a lot is 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 the Rule Five draft coming up next week. Yep. Uh, several of the people we're talking about are Rule Five eligible. Is that something the players think about or are concerned about, or are they at this point just you know working on what they need to do to get better? No, the guys that are eligible are very focused in on the Rule Five draft. Yeah, so they're they're going to be paying attention next Thursday to see if their their names call. You know, we're talking about guys like RJ, Ben Madison. Those are, those two in particular uh, pop yep. in my mind. Um, yeah, and, it's, uh, and, and relievers are the guys who who tend to go in that draft. Yep, I mean relievers, power hitters, catchers, uh, middle infielders are tend to be the the people we see go in the Rule Five draft. Um, it's also a weird spot as an agent because by rule, you're not allowed to talk to other teams about your uh -huh. player because that would be tampering. However, there's a very real possibility that one of these teams is about to select one of your players. And the players want are dying for information, uh, much of which we can't give. We can speculate. We can hear through the grapevine. Um, but there's not, you know, not much we can do um, to, to facilitate the process. Yeah, when we'll we'll have those answers in a week. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I always feel a little conflicted because one, I I want to see these guys have success as Giants, but two, I know how life changing uh, being added to a forty man is, and and so it's obviously good for the player. Well, the um, reality is, you're not even being added to the forty; you're being added to the twenty six, and right. so yeah, with that comes a lot of extra benefits to the player, even if they don't stick and they end up coming back to the Giants. Um, you know, just even 
getting out of camp with a team and starting to collect some service has huge financial um, implications on players. That's right. Even in spring training. Well, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, my clock is ticking down on me. So I will just ask you for a, a couple of specifics. So, you know, what are, what, what has been Madison and RJ Davovich uh, doing uh, this time of year? What are, how are they, what are they working on? RJ is training. He is uh, rehabbing still um, from the hip, but he's in a really good place. Um, he's down at the facility in, in Arizona and, and getting closer and closer to being full go. Ben is back home, um, in Arkansas training. Um, I don't think Ben is like adjusting anything or tweaking anything. I think Ben is looking more for consistency. And, uh, if that comes, I think the sky is the limit for Ben. Ryan is focused on being a dad and letting his body rest a little bit, (laughs) but he's back in the waiting room and getting going. Um, I don't think he's up and throwing yet. Matt Olson is training. Um, I think he's working out a push performance and spending a little bit of time in the Giants facility. Uh, Spencer is taking over Mexico currently. And I think that's the group of Giants. And Matheny's a free agent. Um, I think he'll have a job here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Austin Wins is a free agent. I think he'll have a job here in the next couple of weeks. Um, Simon Whiteman is is currently a free agent and looking at all options in life. And, uh, yeah, we've had a great group of giants for the last two, three years. And I really enjoy working with their front office and their scouting department. Um, their scouting department is incredible to work with. Uh, Michael Holmes is one of my favorite scouting directors in the entire country. One thing that uh, uh, the giants focus on that is very much aligned with what you focus on is getting high character kids. And uh, the, that always shows through when I'm when I'm dealing with these rosters. It's well, just... it, it, it goes for the draft, too. I mean, they're looking for those guys, but Holmes is a high character guy who shoots you straight within the draft room. He doesn't hide the ball. He's not trying to make you guess. Um, he tells you right where you're at. He, he, it's how you want to operate within the draft. And, uh, it, you know, I, I certainly get happy if my phone starts ringing on those days in July and I see Michael's name on the other line. It, it usually means we're about to have a good conversation. Well, uh, you know, Ryan Walker's year last year was one of the most delightful things to see <laughs> possible. He got, what married had a child and became a big leaguer uh, he also bought a house i think he closed (laughs) on his house in spring training so hopefully 2024 uh just continues the success for him uh, as well as all the guys we've talked about because these these are all great kids alex i can't uh thank you enough for spending some time chatting with me i know you've got a lot on your plate right now (laughs) um good luck good luck next week and uh good luck to all of the players that you represent thanks roger thanks for all the nice things you say about these guys i appreciate Uh, it no worries i i only say it because it's true uh (laughs) to my listeners thanks for tuning in you can of course find much much more of my giants content by becoming a their giant subscriber and uh, we'll be back with uh, more giants prospect talk next week thanks everybody have a great weekend